Hey, this is Bridget, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, today's episode is a little bit of a heavy topic. I just want to address right up front, it's about death and dying. Today we're talking about how you go through the process of grieving when you lose a parent or a loved one. Now, there's a ton of research out there about the negative impacts losing a parent has on a child, but actually not that much on how it impacts adults. Now, I think that's because losing a parent is kind of considered to be a normal rite of passage for going into adult life. But it almost seems to me there should be more research if we're all dealing with this, not less. One theory for why there's so little research was posited in 1943 by Talcott Parsons. He basically theorized that when we get married, we become less attached to our parents. But this is actually not true, as research in the United States during the last 40 years pretty much refuted the idea that Americans radically disconnect or abandon their parents, married or not. Now, what we do know is that men and women tend to grieve differently. According to Thomas Becker from the Green Bay Center for Oncology, men tend to grieve by picking up some new task, skill, or responsibility— laundry or cooking, men really channel their grief into tasks. Women, on the other hand, tend to be a little more emotional. They work out their grief by talking about it. They tell their story over and over again because that helps them process how they're feeling. He writes that women confide in friends, outwardly express their feelings and emotions to feel their way through grief. Furthermore, rather than focusing on fixing it or problem solving, women look toward connection and perspective to work through their grief. The feminine approach to grief, he writes, might find you reaching out to people to share your thoughts, stories, and feelings. Looking into the research on women and grieving, I was really struck by the idea that women work through grief by sharing stories and their feelings. That's why I was so taken with Molly Guy. Now, I always knew Molly as this really cool lady on the internet. Vogue.com contributing editor and the founder and creative director of Stone Fox Bride. Perfect hair, great clothes, the kind of effortlessly cool NYC life I've always wanted. When her father passed away, she began sharing intimate images and stories of his life on Instagram, calling it a digital diary about life, death, and dads. And as a lifelong daddy's girl, I was hooked. I've talked briefly on the show about having a chronically ill parent and living in fear that one day he won't be around. And when I saw Molly's project on Instagram, it stopped me mid-scroll. It forced me to confront a reality I almost never let myself acknowledge. One day, I'll be grieving my own father. Some of the things Molly shares are sweet and mundane— a picture of her and her dad having a meal with a touching caption about how much he loved Chicago. Some are gut-wrenching and unflinchingly honest. In one post, she shares an image of her father in a hospital bed. The caption recalls that someone else's sick father was in the hospital room next to her own. She reveals that during her devastation, she asked God why her dad had died, and the dad in the next room did not. Through this digital archive of her grief, Molly is using Instagram to show the world what this process really looks like. Sometimes it looks sweet and touching. Other times it looks like cataloging the odd little things about your loved one that you just don't want to forget. And sometimes it's just plain angry. We'll hear from Molly after this quick break. Molly, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Bridget. Um, It's such an honor to be a guest on your show. I actually have a question for you. Yeah, please. Can we start with my question? Sure. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that your dad is chronically ill. Yeah, he is. Can you tell me about what's going on with your dad? 
Yeah, I'm. Thank you for asking. Um, I don't talk about my dad very often, mostly because it's difficult, and it's one of those things where I have not fully let myself deal with what it means. I think for a lot of heavy emotional reasons, you know, part of it is I've spent most of my life as a young person being a, you know, going out and going to school and getting a job and moving around. And I feel like so much of your 20s are kind of, you're, you're sort of, it's sort of encouraged to be a bit narcissistic. And I've definitely done that. And when I found out my dad was ill, that was the first time that I had to sort of think about what that meant in a larger sense. I had not even thought about what that meant because you just assume that you get forever with your parents. You don't even think about it. And so my dad has a chronic illness called sarcoidosis. Uh, it's very rare. It's the it's the illness that Bernie Mac, the comedian, died from. Um, and, you know, my dad is my best friend. He's the reason that I am who I am. He, he So much of me is him. We could not be more similar, but also... So how, how old were you when, you're, when he was diagnosed, and what are his symptoms? So my dad was diagnosed. It's kind, of, it's kind of a funky story. My dad was ill for a while, and, you know, I kind of, as a kid, I kind of knew something was up, but it didn't become a real thing that we dealt with in an explicit way as a family until I was in my mid-20s. And the way that, the way that we kind of came to terms with this was when I, I was in graduate school at the time, and we found out that my dad was very sick and that in order to save his life, he needed a liver transplant. And my brother, I have an older brother, he offered his liver to my dad. And so the, the, the way that it came to be like a family situation that we were all dealing with was through the fact that my brother was going to be donating a liver to my dad. And so... Up until that point, my parents sort of quietly held this burden away from us because they thought, you know, he'll get better. We'll fight this. We'll 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 deal with. We'll we'll bring them in. We'll bring the kids into this when they need to be brought. And so, you know, as a you know, but this time I was a teenager for a lot of this time. I went to college. I think I, I didn't really, I didn't really grapple with it. I knew there were signs of, like, my dad coughed a lot. He often would have, like, intense coughing fits. When he would travel or work a lot, he would be, you know, down for the count for a very long time. And I always sort of thought, like, oh, this is normal. This is not unusual. And it wasn't until my parents said, you know, he needs this, this surgery that I realized my, my dad is chronically ill. And I had not sort of let myself deal with that until that moment. And so for me, it was this, like, shattering thing where— Everything I thought about my parents, you know, this idea that your parents are just going to be there forever, I had to kind of accept, like, this is, that's not real. You, you know, and there's this, this, this sounds very strange, but there's this um, website where, I mean, it sounds so morbid, but you can calculate, you know, if you visit home X times a month and your parents are X, X years old, they can calculate based on, you know, the average span of life for an adult man, an adult woman in America— they can say, if you visit home X times a month, that means that you'll see your parents this many times before they die. And that sounds very morbid. Oh, my God. I love that. So the website is called seeyourfolks.com, and you put in what country your parents live in. On average, how many times a year do you see your parents? How old is your mom? How old is your dad? And it calculates, you know, if you're visiting home this many times a month, this is how many times you'll probably see your parents again based on those numbers. 
Wow. Okay, I'm sending this to my siblings right now. Yeah, it really, I mean, the tagline on the site says, we're so busy growing up sometimes that we forget that they're also growing old. And I think that really struck me because I just, I didn't think about it. I did, it never even, it sounds so narcissistic and so dumb, but I didn't even think about it. And, you know, I was that, I was that sibling who, like, I'm the youngest, so I'm the sibling who, like, went off to the city to go build a kooky life full of kooky characters, and that's been a part of my identity. But you kind of, it's easy to forget the, those people in your life that ground you when you're busy going off building that life, you know? Completely identify with that. Mm-hmm. I, um, your story is very similar to mine. My dad got diagnosed with um, something called polystemia vera in 1997. I was in college. I was, I, it was the, um, I think my junior year in college or my sophomore year in college, my dad, I think at the time was like 52 or 53 and perfect health as far as I knew. And like a very, um, a person who really like radiated and projected perfect health. He was 6'6". He was like an all-star basketball player in college. Um, he was a tennis player. He never took sick days. He was president of his real estate company. He ate really well. Um, he'd never complained about his health ever. And he started to talk about how his, um, his, his fingers had, were tingling. And like, who wants to hear your parents talk, complain about their health when you're 19 years old? I wasn't paying a lot of attention, but, um, I do remember at some point that summer, my mom saying that my dad had been diagnosed with this rare form of this rare blood disease. And we went to New York to visit my sister, who was fresh out of college, and my mom and I shared a hotel room, and we woke up one morning, and and I remember seeing her mascara all over the pillow, because she had been crying. And um, the next 20 years, my dad left his his real estate, his corporate real estate job. He started the MPN Foundation, which was dedicated. There was no, no one really knew very much about the blood cancer that he had. He, um, in his mid-50s, devoted his his career to um, raising money to fund scientific research in the name of, of MPN, myeloproliferative per, neoplasms. Um, he ended up raising $20 million by the time that he died. And But his disease was very much on the periphery of my life. He was, for the most part, pretty asymptomatic. And the symptoms that he had, I didn't really want to know about. I was very much kind of in denial and um, there were some time, you know, he took a range of different drugs. He had, with, there were, you know, periods of times where he would have to have phlebotomies at the hospital or where he would have to inject himself where he was on interferon um, or he was on different drugs that had different side effects. But um, I never wanted to know about it. It very much, I, I was very much um, not a part of my life. At all, and I mean, I I totally identify with what you said about like the narcissism of your twenties. My life was very much about my life and my drama, and I didn't want to ask. I mean, I sort of perfunctorily said, "Dad, how's your health?" But I didn't really want to know. And um, after I had a baby and started my own business, I joined the board of my dad's nonprofit. I thought maybe I could help him do some marketing work, which I did. And but I would always say, you know, I don't know anything about the science and. I don't know. I can't really keep up with the scientific research. It's not my specialty. Um, but this summer, my dad's disease progressed really quickly. And 
he uh, asked my sister and my mom and my uncle and I to meet to come with him to meet with a stem cell transplant specialist in New York. And we did, and he was feeling sick at that time. And the specialist said that his disease was on the verge of converting to leukemia and he would need a transplant. And boom. I mean, he died four months later. Oh and God. in those four months, he went from being, you know, my super, like, virile, happy, healthy dad to, like, a really sick, pretty sick guy. And um, it's it didn't really hit me. So that was late August when it was decided that he would have a stem cell transplant. And this procedure was really sold to us as being sort of foolproof. 15% mortality rate due to complications. But, I mean, who thinks... I mean, that seemed like a complete, you know, it seemed like a no-brainer, like who gets a 15% complication. And um, and two months later, uh, my dad wasn't responding to the chemo and was still really sick. And there was this one day we had a doctor's appointment where she mentioned something on October 26th where I realized that um, there was a good possibility that he could die. And I think that was like probably the worst day of my life. It had seriously never occurred to me before that my dad could die. It had never really like, I had never really felt the possibility that he could die until then. That was only a few months ago. And um, him and I heard those words together. We were in the Uber car together. We um, had lunch together afterwards. And um, that night I asked my friend Rachel to come over and like sit with me. We watched my cousin Vinny together just because I felt like I needed to, I mean, I was so scared. It was like the weirdest feeling. I think throughout all of this, that was the worst day ever to this day. Um, but yeah, I mean, I never, it had never occurred to me that my dad was going to get old and die. It sounds so silly. I mean, it's like you could have heard, I mean, I've heard this line a hundred times in like a Nicholas Sparks book or a movie, but, um, it just didn't seem applicable to anything in my life that my dad would that my dad's body would fail him. I identify with that so much. I think that you know you look back at these pictures of your loved one, you know, for for you, your father, and it's it's something about it. it seems like they're going to be there forever. It's I mean, I you you posted something on your Instagram that was a picture of your dad when he was a bit younger, and how it didn't occur to you that you know, he was human in a kind of way. And having to confront as our parents get older, get sick, get ill, their bodies fail, having to confront that this image that we've built, that they're going to live forever, we'll always have them in our lives, we can take them for granted. It's it just sort of one day that that mask comes off and you see it for the reality. And it's just, you just think, how could I have thought this for so long? I mean, I think if we were to really grasp that reality, when it was presented to us that we we wouldn't go on. So, you know, my kids now are very aware of death. I have two daughters. They're three and six. And ever since my dad died, Grandpa B, they're sort of fascinated by death. And I bought a lot of books off Amazon on talking about death with kids. And they love to now, like, pretend they're dead and talk about death all the time. And um, their new favorite thing is to ask me, are you going to die? And, like, when I Google what to say that says that you should say, I have no plans to die, but everyone dies. So I say... I have no plans to die anytime soon, and my job is I'm going to stay here and protect you and keep you safe, and we're going to be a family. You know, my my job is, my, I, my plans are to stay here and protect you guys and keep us together as a family, and 
in our home or whatever it is I say. If my children were to truly grasp in this moment that I was going to drop dead one day, I mean, whether or not it's going to be today or whether or not, God willing, it's going to be 58 years from today, there would, be, I mean, they would drop, they would break, they, they would implode, you know, as would I. If I were to, re- I mean, if I were to look at a crystal ball in August, when this stem cell transplant specialist told me that, you know, there was a 15% mortality rate, if I had a crystal ball and could see what the next four months had in store for me, I would have imploded then. I mean, I don't think, I once heard um, a war reporter, I think it was Sebastian Younger, talk about how our we have like a built-in forgetter in our DNAs and how... Uh, anytime he's gone to uh, a war zone to report on a war, he has always said, I will never do this again. He said he calls his wife. I mean, this was 20 years ago, I think, when I heard him. And she's crying and saying, how can you do this? You have to come home. We can't, I can't do this without you. I don't even know, you know, come home, come home to the kids. And he says, I will never do this again. But six months later, he goes back and he reports again. And I've also heard from women who give birth. I mean, I've done it twice. Say, you know, I will never, it is so painful, I will never do this again. I mean, there is something about our bodies where I don't, I think we are only able to process, to process a little bit of information at a time. Um, the same with grief. I mean, after my dad died, I have, you know, very strange physical symptoms from stomach aches, sinus infections. I couldn't open my, I had like my jaw locked up for a couple weeks. I mean, I just, it's too, there's, it's too intellectually, it's too hard to comprehend. My mom keeps saying she still thinks he's coming home. And I said, I think that's great. I hope that you think that for the next 20 years. And God forbid what, what, you know, your body's going to shut down if you stop thinking that. Yeah. I think that when it comes to dealing with grief, our bodies, just become this vessel, whether it's it's these physical symptoms that you never thought would manifest them, them, themselves that way, or sort of our brains tricking us into thinking that, you know, tricking us into forgetting how precious and how fragile life is just so that we can live. Because who would, who would go, like you said, who would go through a day if you knew that everyone that was important to you could, could you know, die tomorrow? How could you go to work? How could you feed your kids? How could you take a shower? How could you live your life? Right. I mean, how could we, you know, this is a, a, a different podcast. How could we send our children to school knowing, I mean, there's 18 doors on my kid's school and none of them lock. Knowing that at any <sighs> minute, you know, we, they go to school in the main thoroughfare in Brooklyn, New York, that someone could burst in with, a, and there's no laws to protect them. I mean, we have... We, we, in order to exist in the world, we have to put blinders on, rose-tinted glasses, 24 hours of the day, you know? So, I mean, it's like, it's not like we're fed a lie when we're kids, but there's no, I mean, I'm 41 years old. I heard, I sat in doctor's appointments with my dad for four months while they said, there's a very good chance, you know, there's a chance that you're not going to survive this procedure, Mr. Rosen. And it never occurred to me until he was very close to death that he was going to die. This was not on my radar. I could not intellectually process it. I couldn't like somatically process it. I couldn't spiritually understand it probably until, I mean, his body was lowered into the ground. I mean, that's exactly, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode because I feel like I'm in that place where, you know, even if my dad didn't have an illness, everyone dies. 
But when it's someone that we just rely on, that, like, they're always going to be there and that's a blanket thing, we don't even really feel that until they're not there. And it's just, it's it's fascinating how our our brains let us think this thing that is irrational. It's like, that's, not, that's an irrational thought that my dad's going to live forever. Nobody, I'm not going to live forever. Nobody lives forever. Right. I, I genuinely, be, like, it took a lot for me to accept that my parents won't be there one day. And I think, you know, part, and I think part of it is talking about grief. Like, when someone is grieving, you know, it's almost, I think it was Sheryl Sandberg who wrote this, that when her husband died, people almost seem like they don't want to touch you as if it, as if loss and grief is, is contagious. And we don't talk about grief. We don't see grief. And I think that's part of it. It's we, we are able to live in this fantasy that no one we love is going to die. And it's not true. And I think what you're doing with your project on Instagram, where you're showing what grief looks like. Sometimes it looks like anger. Sometimes it looks like this. Sometimes it looks like that. Like, it's projects like that that help us come to terms with reality in a, in a lot of ways. That's so nice. Thank you. Last night I was reading to my kids, Grief is Like a Snowflake. And it's this like sort of profound book about uh, these four Christmas trees and, and the little Christmas trees. Dad is, gets chopped down. And he wants to know where his dad is gone. And the mom says she gets taken away. He's been taken away. And there's all these different pictures of, like, trees with different faces about how they feel now that the tree's been taken away. And my daughter pointed to two different faces. And she said, this is how I feel now that Grandpa B is dead. And there was an, an angry face and a sad face. And I was like, wow. And, I, you know, I was thinking to myself, I guess I've done something right if she can... First of all, I was, like, very impressed that she pointed out to the faces and she could c- communicate that, but that she, like, even was able to communicate that she was angry. But, um, yeah, there are so many feelings that come along with this, the pain of this loss, and one of them is anger. I mean, I have a lot of anger toward <laughs> irrational, I mean, rational, irrational, whatever you want to call it. I get really angry towards the hospital, towards the nurses, towards the doctor. I mean, they're they're easy targets, you know. It's easy for me to overlook the fact that the reason we were there in the first place is because my dad was sick. You know, I can get angry about the nurse that said to me, you know, as I was crying the day before my dad died, stop crying, you need to be strong for him. You know, I'll get enraged at the nurse. But, like, who am I to get enraged? You know, that's what, that's what she believed and like who cares um or like you know i are angry at my dad like angry at my dad why dad why did he, i mean why the f- did you have to die um but um it just seemed so this the project on instagram i thought it was interesting because i looked over your questions and you said what made you want to do the project or share the project with other people and the project actually was never really about sharing it with the other people. The project is about, uh, after my dad died, I have like a, a, a rabbi that my rabbi, Amahai Lau Levi, um, was really instrumental in helping my dad and I like talk about what would happen if he were to die while he was going through this chemo. And after my dad died, I sat with him and said, like, well, what am I supposed to do now? And he said, you know, some people cover their mirrors for a year. Some people will wear black for a year. Some people will wear a black ribbon for a year. Some people say cottage for a year. And I was trying to think, like, well, what, you know, what can I do for a year? And um, 
like I only have one mirror in my house that my kids need. And um, no, I don't want to wear black for a year because then I would just have to end up buying more clothes. And the ribbon thing was just, I don't know. I thought I would forget the ribbon. Um, during my dad's funeral, it was, which was a very, very warm day in January, while they were actually lowering the coffin into the ground, I just sort of like crouched down at the coffin. It was like weirdly comfortable just to crouch there. And I looked up and I saw my brother-in-law taking a picture with his phone. And at the time I thought like, that was so weird. You know, I just was like, it'll put your phone away. Um, but that night he sent me the picture and I just, I actually really loved the picture. I knew my dad would have loved it too. My dad was all about like weird candid photographs that captured like family dynamics. And, um, I put the picture on my personal Instagram account, which at the time had like, I don't know, a thousand followers on it. It was only pictures of my kids. And I said something to my dad and I got some responses and I liked the feeling of having people like respond. It was the day that of my dad's funeral and I was sitting Shiva at my mom's house. And I don't know, it was a night. I mean, what, it was, I had not been on Instagram for three months. I shut, I, I shut, I took it off my phone as my dad was dying because I just wanted to be present with him. And it was nice to like have some sort of support on the platform the day he died. And then, um, I had written a speech for his funeral that I was really proud about and, you know, 40 people heard it. And after I came back from the funeral, I sent it. I'm a contributing editor at Vogue.com. I sent it to my editor there. I said, would you want to run this speech? And she said, like, well, it's really nice, but, I, you know, it wouldn't really work. Maybe we could do it on Father's Day. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll just send, put, like, chunks of the speech on the Instagram. So I did that for a couple of days. And then I put a few pictures of us up. And then I thought, well, I'll do this for 30 days because it feels kind of nice to honor my dad. And people started writing in and saying, like, thanks for sharing your dad with us. He sounds like a cool guy. Sounds like you had an interesting relationship, which in my life had never occurred to me that my dad, A, was cool or B, that we had an interesting relationship ever, ever of any person in my life. Certainly my dad was the lowest one on the cool tone pole. I never thought we had an interesting relationship. But then I was like, all right, well, I'll just keep writing. And in the beginning, it was very just like, you know, linear stories about me and my dad. And then I was like, well, I'm going to keep this up for 60 days. And then it just started to feel like a dis a kind of a painful discipline. And it was painful discipline, I think, in probably the same way it's painful to wear, to cover your mirrors or to wear the black ribbon or to say Kaddish every day. And, or, I don't know, I recently read the Marina Abramovich book, The Artist is Present, or I don't know if that's the book or the movie, but it's actually an amazing book. And she talks about sitting at MoMA for six months and just looking people in the eye every day. Uh, but anyway, there's something, it's a pain in the ass to sit and write those letters every night to my dad. I do it every night between 9.30 and 10. And, um, and, but it, it's a dis, it feels like the, it feels like an appropriate discipline and it's a way to honor him. And it's a way that keeps him fresh in my mind all day. Like today I think like, well, what is it? What is it? What do I want to think about? How do I want to hold him in my head today or in my body today? And, um, it keeps, it keeps him with me. And I guess there's that added, there's the added weirdness of then I get this, like this, it, these instant responses, 
which if I was writing on my own, I would never, ever, ever get. I mean, that's the weird thing about social media is the most likely I would be still be doing this in the privacy of my um, computer. But with Instagram, I get those comments, which are gratifying. So that's kind of like the self-serving part of it. But it's more like, you know, I'm just trying to be hard on myself to keep this up for a year. And at the end of the year, just see what emerges, if anything does. But I saw that, you know, my dad would not be happy about this at all. He was not. I, I wanted to write about this on my newsletter for Stone Fox Bride about his sickness in September, and he asked me not to. And um, I was not. He was not happy with me sharing details of his sickness with anyone. I mean, he was a very, very private person, and he and I butted heads a lot. He did not understand, like, why it was such an overshare at all. And so I know he wouldn't. I mean, I think he was, like, wherever he is, he's, like, rolling his eyes. And a lot of times I have to say, like, I have to check with him before I press send, like, are you okay with this? And there's a ton of stuff I don't put in there that I know he wouldn't like. Um I think the project as a whole he would be okay with, but he would not be happy with me sharing so many of these personal details. But um, that's, at this, you know, his, it's, it's my story now. We'll hear more from Molly after a quick break. And we're back. Do you feel like through the, this project that it's helped you process grief at all that you it's sort of even if it's hard or it's a pain in the ass or it's it's not something that's easy do you feel like that you'll be able to look back on this and say this is a digital monument to how I felt and it sucked but here it is I don't know I mean there are times I look back on it even now like what I wrote last month and I'm like we'll get choked up I I actually have no idea I like looking back on it. I like looking back on the writing and seeing, like, what emerges. Like, there's this really interesting thing that's, like, emerging for me about how, um, like, these interesting themes about, like, love and the body and, like, how is my dad's body was breaking down. Like, we, I sort of had this different understanding of what love was or what it is capable of being and how it has nothing to do with skin and bones and blood, but it's like very transcendent and that has never been my experience of love. It's always been very much about like appearance and, and physical presence. Um, like that was news to me. And there was this whole like thing. I, the story that I uncovered last year, I had asked my dad if we had any stones in our family. I wanted to make a new piece. I think you mentioned that. I said, dad, I want to make a new ring. Do we have any stones? any loose stones. I'm, I want to make a new piece of jewelry. And he said, yeah, we do. We, I do have some loose stones. And I was like, oh my God, so excited. And he came out from his closet holding these flat uh, rocks from the beaches of Lake Michigan. And at the time I just was like, oh, you know, sort of this is everything that's wrong with my dad and my family. Like we're so Midwestern, we're so provincial, why can't we vacation in Greece? Why don't we have more money? Why aren't we more ostentatious? Just everything. Where are the diamonds? And um, it's that kind of story that I have now retold in his death and sort of rediscovered. As, and I see, like, there's a lot of beauty in it. And there's, like, that's my dad. 
but in the re- there's a lot of retelling in the story of who my dad was or in anecdotes of our time together that in in that I have found sort of a different side of him that when he was alive are parts of our relationship I spent a lot of time like rolling my eyes about and it was only in the last few years that I've come to really like love and respect that's so beautiful I I loved that story about the stones I feel like it says everything about who your dad was in one little kind of mundane anecdote I thought oh I I know the kind of guy he was from that story and I just I found it to be so so touching and poignant it's interesting how in death it kind of brings you closer to who your loved one was, that maybe it was hard to see them in a certain way when they were around because we have all these, all this baggage from our relationships and from, you know, trying to exist together and being family and all this weight. But when that's all gone, you kind of realize there, this, new, this new story of who they were emerges and you can sort of let yourself see it more clearly. Yes. I mean, I was lucky because that story had sort of started to emerge as he was dying. And it had started to emerge for him. I mean, he knew he was dying, I think, more than we knew. And so um, he spent a lot of time crying these past few months and being very nostalgic and talking a lot about family and about the future and about the past. And um, there was, you know, growing up, my dad was like a very tense, angry, hardworking guy. He had a lot of rage and he was very hard to get close to. And we did not have, I did not have an experience of intimacy with him that in the past year and certainly in the past few months that we did. I mean, we spent a lot of time to get, you know, his, his health and his body was failing him, but his mind and his spirit was not. So um, he did not have a lot of like defenses. And we did, we had a lot, we talked a lot about, you know, love and life and death and family. And, um, I had been going through my own, uh, stuff this past year that I, I needed his help with. And luckily it didn't take till he was dead. I mean, I was aware that I was aware towards the end that these moments together were transient. And I started to really, like, I started to really kind of mine them for all, you know, to run with that diamond metaphor, like, for all that they were worth. So I was, like, very, there was, like, so much, like, love, there was so much, like, raw emotion and love between us in the end. Um, I guess my brother-in-law's father, like, just dropped, dropped dead one night without any warning. And my children's father's father... Um, my soon-to-be ex-husband's father, is very slowly deteriorating due to dementia. And, um, you know, and now there's my father who, you know, had sort of four months to die. And they're all, you know, death is death, and there's sort of like three different versions of of death right there. But um, I certainly had some time with my dad to, to, to make sense of the fact that we didn't have all the time left together and to use that to our advantage. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I want to get to a place in my own personal life where I'm not waiting until my dad is, you know, on his deathbed to have, to have that kind of relationship. I don't want to wait until it's, I don't have enough time. I got to, I got to start doing it. I got to start doing it. And I think it's like, I almost I almost want this episode to sort of be a personal testament to keep me accountable because like you were saying it is I, I want to acknowledge that it it for myself and for a lot of people 
it requires sort of like getting out of your own life, getting out of this sort of trap of, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so important, blah, blah, blah. It, it, it involves getting over some like grudges and baggage and stuff that you thought, oh, I would, I'll never get over that. I'll always hold a grudge about this. Like, we'll never be as close as we want to because of this happened. It involves sort of saying like, none of that stuff matters. I want I want to have the time that I have with my with my loved one. And it, it involves us feeling like really vulnerable. So for me, it was a lot of saying like, it was just a lot of like saying really uncomfortable. It was a lot of like real and raw intimacy. It was a lot of like my dad wanted to celebrate Shabbat. I mean, this is like a very specific example. So we're Jewish and my dad wanted to have Shabbat dinner every Friday night. He wanted to have it with my kids there and my kid, you know, it was way past their bedtime. And he really likes this one f-ing Jewish prayer that I used to sing at JCC summer camp when I was like nine. And it's, it's so painful for me to sing. It's like so dorky and horrible. And every time I sing it, he would get tears in his eyes. And I would light the candles and sing the prayer. And um, it's like that feeling of just like, I hate singing that prayer. I mean, I feel like I'm a nine-year-old again. But um, I knew how much it meant to him, just like I knew how much, you know, it meant to him on Saturdays when I would go sit with him at my sister's house and, um, you know, bring him bagels and we would look over stuff he'd written. Or Sometimes it was just about, like, getting, you know, uncomfortable, you know, being uncomfortable, being tired, not wanting to show up and saying the thing, singing the thing, you know, really getting outside of my comfort zone. And I know it was that way for my sister, too. So it's almost like you can't, you have to, do, you have to do it. You can't think it. Like you might have to say like, dad, this is going to be really awkward and weird. I mean, I remember when my dad was dying, you know, as he was, as he lay there dying and I didn't even know if he could hear me. And I was talking to him about dad, we're talking about taking you off life support. You know, I was crying so hard I could barely breathe. And my kid's father was like shushing me like Shh, you don't want him to know that we're thinking about taking him off life support like there's no manual for it and I was like well I yeah I think I do want him to know this it all was so uncomfortable but um I think that was the part of it that felt really real you know we get I, in my life I'm so used to being sort of comfortable with everything and like in my element but there was nothing about this experience that was comfortable for me at all at all I mean, up to like, you know, I had rubber gloves, I was in like rubber gloves and a paper robe and I was trying, I mean, I just was completely out of my comfort zone with everything. The only thing I had was like my voice and my heart and my like love to kind of navigate everything. And I guess in the end, I mean, as cheesy as this sounds, that was enough. That makes that makes perfect sense. It doesn't sound cheesy at all. It makes perfect sense. And I think... Oh, I'm glad. I, I hope that this episode can really... For, not just for me personally, but yes, for me personally, but also for folks who maybe are, are dealing with coming to terms with their parents and sort of, you know, how, how little time we have left. And I want to acknowledge that not everybody has, you know, the kind of parents where you can... Where they... Where they feel comfortable to have a good relationship with them, even in death. But I think that for folks who want to be able to look back and say, you know, I didn't wait till we had, you know, five months, three months, two months left. I made good use of the time that I had with my loved one. And I'm, I'm, 
I can feel good about that time. And I can look back on that time and feel like it was really special and something that we can treasure. I, I often feel like I'm, I mean, I, I see by the day, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, when you really, sort of like we were saying earlier, when you really look at it, like, by the day, every day that I don't spend with my loved ones is a day that I could, I, that I, that almost feels wasted. It's like, when they're not there anymore, will I say mm-hmm. like, oh, I blew off my dad because I wanted to sleep in. When my dad's not right. here, I'll look back on that and be like, fuck, what were you thinking? And if, if we really allowed ourselves to be honest about how short and how fragile life is, we would make a whole slew of different choices. And so I want to make those different choices, and I hope that folks out there who also want to make those different choices use this as a, as a springboard to do that. Um, the last thing I want to say is when my dad was actively dying, so he was in, he was dying from Saturday to Thursday. And there was no, I mean, I've seen people die in the movies where it's, everything is beautiful and the angels are streaming in and there's sunshine, but this was not that. It was horrible. It was bloody. It was bloated. It was f***ing awful. And it was traumatic, and he was like, my brother said, who you know, he said it was like being in the room with it plus The Shining plus your worst nightmare ever. It was horrible being in that room. He was like so swollen and deformed from all of the drugs and from the machines. It it was not my dad in that room. It was a monster. And um, it really was. I know, I'm sorry. I know that's gruesome to say. There was like blood and machines and pills and ice. He was ice cold, and it was awful. And I really didn't want to go in that room ever. And I just wanted someone to say, like, you don't have to go in that room. He doesn't know you're there, and it's too upsetting. And just stay home with your kids. But everyone said, like, you know, go. Go to the hospital, and you can go, and you don't have to stay in the room all day, but you need to go in and out of the room. And um, in going in and out of the room, I did find... I mean, as much as I was waiting for someone to say, you stay home, like, he's going to die, you don't have to go there. Everyone was like got to go. And I did find this whole new reserve of like strength in going there and being with my dad in those last days of his life that I did not think I had in me. And, um, you know, I really had to push myself to go in and be with him and talk to him and be with my family and have these hard conversations about whether or not to take him off life support and whether or not to let him die naturally and, you know, hold the phone up to his ears as my rabbi was blessing him, you know, has, and, and absolving him and, you know, rubbing his feet that were cold and all of this stuff. And I'm, and I mean, I was so at, taken to the edge of the cliff there. And all of this stuff um, brought me so much, I don't know, closer to fill in the blank, but um, definitely life-changing. Well, Molly, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story with, with me, with us. It's personally very meaningful, and I think that a lot of folks are dealing with this, and I think it's, I think it's a, a really powerful and important story for folks to hear. And I'm, I'm so thankful that you, that you are okay to talk about this in such honest and unflinching ways. Thank you, Bridget. Best of luck to you. Please stay in touch. Well, Sminty listeners, that was a little bit of a tough personal conversation right there. But I really hope for anybody out there who's experienced loss or is grieving the loss of a loved one, I hope it can be helpful. And please tell me what you think. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast, on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, 
And I'd love to get an email from you on this subject at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Thank you.